I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. Talk easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor Stephen Yun. Yun first broke out in the hit AMC series The Walking Dead, where he played fan favorite character Glenn Ree from 2010. To 2016. In the years to follow, though, Stephen has made increasingly interesting choices, collaborating with a wide variety of auteurs like director Bong in Okja, Boots Riley in Sorry to Bother You, and director Lee in Minari, for which he received an Oscar nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role, making him the first Asian American to do so. His latest work comes in a new Netflix original series called Beef. Created by Lee Sung Jin, the show tracks the aftermath of a road rage incident between two strangers, a despondent contractor played by Yun and a self-made entrepreneur played by Ali Wong. Here's a clip from the trailer. What is your problem? What? I have a very full life that I'd love to get back to. I'm gonna find you and take what little you have. 
You're just a suburban housewife, and now you're stuck in a life you never wanted. You have this serene Zen Buddhist thing going on. Hey. I would love to let this go. But actions have consequences. I just can't understand what those people are so angry about. You started this. Me. Yeah. Okay, you're the one who backed into me like a psycho. You're the one that flipped me off all roided out and sh. Are you guys leaving, or are you just gonna sit there? What'd you say? What'd you say? Say it again! I dare you to say it again! That was from the new series entitled Beef, which is now available to stream on Netflix. For the last month now, I have been berating friends and family about this show, but it really is a special series, one that I think captures both the joy and frustration of wading through the world post-pandemic in 2023. I could say more, but we talk about all things beef at the top of this episode. We also, of course, discuss Yun's immigration from Seoul to the U.S., coming of age in Michigan, finding his way on the stages of Second City, Chicago, and how really each film and character has shaped the artist he is today. So, without further ado, this is Stephen Yun. Stephen Yun. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you feeling? I feel good. I feel... You can um, give an honest answer. Yeah. I'm, that's the thing is my honest answer is unsure, but not like negatively unsure, just generally unaware of myself for the present moment. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try to make sense of that. All right. Oh, in God. this conversation. Here we go. All right. We're going to give it a go. Okay. I can't good. promise anything. <laughs> I, I don't even know what I would do with promises. <laughs> so it's good. <laughs> um, I want to start with this new show, Beef. It's on Netflix. It's created by Lee Sung Jin. And in it, you play Danny, a despondent contractor who backs out of a hardware store parking lot only to nearly collide with another driver. That driver is played by Ali Wong, and she proceeds to aggressively honk at you. Naturally, you're offended by the honk, and you begin to do what we have all dreamt of doing from time to time, which is to aggressively chase after the honker through the streets of Los Angeles. (laughs) I don't know whether it's road rage or, or retribution or both, but what follows from this very minor act of aggression is pretty remarkable. So my first question for you, when was the last time you maniacally chased someone through the streets of Los Angeles? Did it happen coming here today? No, today was relaxed. So it has happened. In Los Angeles, I don't think I ever have. I'm certain I have done something like that. I don't know. You know what it is? When I'm in the car, this is a weird thing that I do is like if someone that's close to me is with me and somebody like cuts me off or like is going too slow or is doing something wrong, like in my opinion, I make a whole performance out of it. I just like, because the person with me has seen me being slighted, I now have to make a deal about it. But when I'm by myself, I'm generally like genial. I'm like, okay, whatever. I've done that same thing. I don't know what that says about me. It says something. It says a lot, probably. It's like you don't want to get played 
in front of your friend or oh, a family sure. member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or it, it's just it's just being witnessed. <laughs> it's just like there's a, another party, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, crimes could be committed against you so long as you're by yourself. Oh, yeah, because then it's just with me, and I, and I can reconcile it. And only you have to live with it. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah. My real question for you is around this quote you have, mm. where you said, you never know what a character is doing to you until you're done with it. Now that this show is out in the world, what has the role of Danny done to you? Oh, man. I will say, for me, there's always a process of exiting a character... And when I say exit, it doesn't necessarily mean like I shed it or let go of it. It's actually, it feels like more of an absorption of a character. And so in this case with Danny, that character made me see and confront a lot of my own shame. It was interesting to go back and look at parts of myself and things that I could relate to with Danny where maybe he was unwilling to really properly look at himself. What do you mean? I think Danny has a narrative for his own life, one in which he's oppressed constantly and he's he feels completely justified you know and that was really fascinating to try to dig into and i relate to that i remember coming over here when i was young at four from korea and like having that like consciousness of being in another place that doesn't understand you or receive you in a way that you had just lived and the frustration that comes from that and the isolation that comes from that and so i think that feels like where danny's stuck and so revisiting that was like kind of like an embrace of my past childhood self to just be like, yeah, you know, there were some rough spots, you know, in your early years. And you can look at that as cringe. But I heard this one real great quote that said, uh, don't kill the cringe, but kill the part that cringes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty right. You know, like, I think that's what Danny has helped me to do is like, yeah, all that stuff I used to cringe about, like, it's all good. That's like part of my human experience. It's all good. Well, I want to talk about that younger self in a second. But before we do that, having watched this show, it really feels like, at least to me, the first piece of art to capture what it's like to live in America post-pandemic. Because like in the throes of COVID, you may remember, we talked a lot about leaving lockdown kinder, more generous, decent, patient. And I have to say... Now that we're here in 2023, it does feel, at least on the road, that people are more stubborn, selfish, and aggressive than they've ever been. Yeah, I mean, I think that was an initial interest for me. You know, Sonny pitched me, Lee Sung-jin, I refer to him as Sonny. Sonny pitched me this show in 2019 before we jumped headlong into the pandemic. And he just brought up, he's like, I'm thinking about this road rage show. I was like, that's it. I was like, I'm into it. I don't know what it was, but... I think it was also 2019, we were deep into this feeling of polarization that we've been talking about for the last decade plus. And what happened? Um, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I felt like, you know, the pandemic, there was an oasis nature to the pandemic. I, I really appreciated like, you know, nature is coming back or like diving into your little pods if you had kids, finding your networks, finding your small villages to like really connect to. That was beautiful. But it also made us a little bit more isolated, I feel. I remember like anytime something crazy would happen in the world or on the news, I remember this always, this constant feeling. I remember when Trump got elected, I had this feeling that like the tentacles of the internet were coming out of the phone and just like grabbing my whole body and like ripping me into it. And I was just like, 
I can't stop looking at this thing. I can't stop being connected to this car crash, you know? I always felt that. And I remember the pandemic felt that way too. It just felt like a long, prolonged, spectacular car crash that we we're all just staring at for a while. And coming out to, you know, the whole thing just turning back on at hyperspeed, now it's like, it feels like nuts. People got places to go, things to do, people to see. I get it, like me, me, me. And I'm, I'm just as much in that as well. So that felt like the natural progression when we first spoke about it. Like it just kept going and now we're here. I wonder like when he was pitching the show to you, we're addressing the anger of beef, but there's also a real tenderness at play. In particular, I'm thinking about a scene where Danny drives out to visit a Korean church in Orange County where the band is beginning to play this song and he becomes overwhelmed with emotion. And I wondered if, if we could watch that for a second. Yeah. This is from episode three of a new show called Beef, now on Netflix. We ask for your spirit to come and fill this place that we might worship you joyfully with all of our hearts. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. What were you thinking while watching that? I mean, that whole scene was a really interesting scene to talk about, for Sonny to have written in, for us to have explored, and then to finally shoot. You know, that's a moment in which he, maybe not knowingly, but he's lost himself for a second. To hear all these people singing, he's desperately looking around, and he's like, who's looking at me? Who's looking at me? And no one's looking at him. No one's thinking about him. No, everyone's just connected to this larger thing. And I think maybe in that moment, Danny is finally able to let go of his story. You know, the one that keeps oppressing him, the one that validates his oppression. Every day he's like, this place is, continues to fuck with me. It's after me. It's trying to get me. And in that one moment in the church, he's like, oh, I don't exist like that. Like that's an idea that I have and I can let go for a second. I don't know if he's conscious of that. I think it's just a feeling, you know? And I think when we were shooting it, it was really interesting because I remember hearing that song and I was talking to Sonny and Jake and I was like, oof, I think I feel it already. It's going to be great. We were shooting a lot of um, the background actors and we were shooting the praise band. I was like, I feel it. This room is like great. Like everybody's here and all the people that were there also had attended Korean church as well. And so like there was a familiarity and a vibe in there. I was like, this is great. The praise band was from the church. And so I remember walking into that moment while they're shooting the other things and being like, yeah, I'm ready. I'm, I, can, I can go there. And then they turned the cameras on me 
and nothing. Couldn't do it. Like no tears, nothing. Couldn't even feel emotional. I was like, what is happening? And everybody had stopped singing for, for sound. They were trying to ISO just me. And I was like, I don't know what is happening, but um, luckily, you know, I've had a little bit of experience. So maybe a younger me would have just been like trying to eke something out or push it or like force it. Um, but this time I was like, there's something off and can I take a minute? And Jake and Sunny let me take a minute. They shot out some other things that they had to shoot. And then I came back and I was like, I think I figured out what it is. They need to keep singing. Everybody needs to keep singing. It's that you're watching me that is making me unable to connect to this moment. And as soon as everybody started singing, it came right back. And I was just like, oh, here's where it's not about me. It's I, I get to lose myself. And that's kind of how I view this moment. But it was also like that for you as a kid, because you come here from Seoul at the age of four, first to Canada, then to Taylor, Michigan mm -hmm. in the mid 80s, where you have this pretty bifurcated life at school with mostly white classmates and then away from that in the Korean church where you did feel some sense of fullness. So when you're performing that scene 30 years later, was some part of you dropped back into those early memories you had at church? For sure. You know, I actually had attended church late into my 20s as well. Um, not going to church has been more of a recent thing in the last maybe decade. And so for me, like, it was a recall. But in my 20s, when I was going to church, I felt the same way. I remember approaching those times when I would go to church and I'd just be like, why am I on the verge of tears right now? Like, what is happening? And I never could make sense of it until we got to this show. And I was like, oh, oh, I see. Like, there's part of it that is perhaps feels like a safe space, but you know, there's performance everywhere. I'm not completely free in the Korean church either. So looking back at that time, you felt like even there you were performing? Sure. When I say performing, I don't mean like a conscious performance. I mean more like the role and the function and the persona and the character that you play within like a specific framework of like different social systems and people. And when I was in more of like a white space, I had to be relegated to like a specific image of who I was that, you know, maybe was a little bit self-imposed, but also felt imposed upon me. Whereas in Korean church, like there was a level playing field, you know, everybody was Korean. So now we're just dealing with like personality. But I really do think that on like a human level, you know, as I explore this scene, like it was just like, oh, the story that I tell of my life, the history that I have of Stephen, of me, this thing that I grip tight to, all the memories that I remember in my specific ways, negative or positive, things that I noticed that I encoded to say like, this is what my life is. This is what the trend of my life is, or this is the consistency of what my life is. Perhaps it doesn't need to be told exactly that way. I want to tap into some of these memories and just try to hold them and all of their weight and complexity and messiness and all of that. Because growing up, you see yourself in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, listening to alt-rock on 89X <laughs> FM radio, yeah. where you said you felt a lot of confusion around why your family uprooted to America. Quote, my dad didn't explain why we left. He took safety and displaced it and didn't explain anything. But it seems like the first time you witnessed the pain and anger your father felt in America 
comes at Murray's auto shop. What happens there? Yeah, my dad um, tried to return this hose in a car, and he had this red station wagon that we were hanging on to for a long time, and I was sitting in the back of the car, and he went into Murray's auto shop, and I just saw him get irate through the glass door. And he just was like shouting at people. And I was just like staring through the window being like, what is happening right now? And he slammed the hose on the ground. And How old were you? Maybe I was like five or six. Actually, no, maybe like six, seven around there. Yeah, he just had a, he just had a difficult run in. I couldn't even really understand what was happening. All I could see was I was like, oh, my dad is angry. Um, he couldn't understand why people couldn't understand what he was going through. Even Even what I'm saying now is like an assumption too. Like, I don't know exactly what was happening in his mind, but like, I could see all the difficulties that he would have to navigate, you know, in order to like experience that experience. And I watched it from a third party as a child being like, what is happening? That question, the quote I had, it also seemed like you didn't know why you had moved here. Yeah, it's it's funny to like jumble it all now after I've like processed some things. But yeah, I didn't even question it, you know, like when, at that age, you're not even thinking about like what is happening. You're just like, this is happening. I wish there was a little bit more explanation, but there wasn't, you know? We are just there. So we're pinpointing things, and there's this photo of you as a young <laughs> kid in a classroom. A classroom that, as I understand it, you had to be, like, dragged to day after day. And yeah. Because you were crying and, and upset about going to school. What is in this photo when you look at it? Oh, man, dude, look at... I mean, I look so terrified and just, like, spooked, just, like, completely confused. I like, like your outfit, though. Oh, thank you. You know, fresh is fresh. Uh, <laughs> fresh, fresh is fresh. Fresh is fresh. Um, he, you know, like, I'm looking at the space between me and the next person, and I look shell-shocked, if anything. I look, like, really scared. To bring it back here, like, did the church help bridge that gap that you felt between yourself and this country? I mean, that is the space, I think, of most immigrants, wherever they can congregate, the safe spaces, tribes, you know? Those are very vital to the survival of immigrants, I think. You had this pastor yeah. that asked you to memorize this passage from Romans 12.2. Mm -hmm. Is that what it was? What, mm -hmm. what was that? Uh, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test God's good and perfect will. It's like right in there. <laughs> it, it seems like you took that passage and away from high school and into Kalamazoo College, listened to that and did go your own way, that you didn't conform to the patterns of probably what was prescribed to you. And there's two performances in college that I just want to sit with. Oh, boy. <laughs> together. Yeah. The first production that you perform in is a play called Balm in Gilead, mm -hmm. where you play a Colombian drug dealer named Javier. Now, your mother came to that performance, right? Yeah. <laughs> how did that go? She said I was all right. I was like, Mom, how did I do? And she's like, it's okay. <laughs> well, you have one quote where you said, she said you were not very good. Oh, is that right? <laughs> oh, I I, uh, I patted true? it. I patted it. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure she's... Uh, no, she wouldn't have said you were not very good. Maybe I was like gassing that up. I think she just... Uh, maybe the, the the affect and the vibe was, I didn't care too much for that. Um, but that was totally justified. I was total shit. Do you remember that play? I do. I remember 
missing a cue one time, not showing up for one of my cues. I remember during rehearsal, she asked, um, our director asked for me to smoke a cigarette in it. And I tried to, I've never smoked a cigarette before. So I looked so stupid that she like <laughs> came up in the middle of the scene and she was like, all right, you're, she snatched it from me. She's like, you're not smoking a cigarette. <laughs> like, she's like, you don't know what you're doing. It was, it was very like fly by the seat of my pants. And you know, what's weird now that you're thinking, now that you make me think about it is like, there's been a lot of potentially shameful, embarrassing moments in my life, like getting the cigarette snatched from me that I easily brushed off. And I don't know how. I remember them. <laughs> They're clear memories. But yeah, I just keep it moving. I mean, even your mom saying to you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not very good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she didn't maybe say that, but yeah, it was very clear. She was saying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No offense. Yeah, no, 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 none taken. And you took that mm. and said to yourself, all right, I'm going to let this propel me forward, not paralyze me. Yeah, that seems to be a consistent thing. Some people were more encouraging than others, though, because in your senior year, you perform at a stage reading of a play written by students. What happens during and after that performance? This woman came up to me after the stage reading. She just comes up to me. She's like, hey, I just want to tell you, keep going. We need people like you in there. And she was a minority actor herself. She's a black woman. And she, was, she came up to me as also a minority actor in that, in that situation. I had never met her before. She wasn't faculty. I had never seen her again. She was like an angel out of nowhere just coming up to encourage me and just say like, hey, I think you should keep trying at this. And I'm so grateful that she was there. I look back at that, and I'm just like, what an incredible moment to hear that. What's so kind of poetic about this is that you have these two very different responses, one from your mother, mm. one from a complete stranger who you'll never talk to again, mm. and that you hear both of their reactions to your work, and you take them with you, mm. and leaving school, you move to Chicago, where you're living in this rear coach house, <laughs> yeah. an apartment with a vaulted ceiling. There's no sunlight. It's, it's a piece of shit. Let's yeah. be honest. Yes. Yes. I can say this as someone who's from Chicago. Yeah. Right. I know, I, I know what this is. Yeah. Telling your parents to please give you two years in the city to try to make it. Yeah. With those two years, you audition for the Second City Touring Group where you're given a sketch to perform written by a Second City alum named Steve Carell. Yeah, just, you know, I think we all know. Maybe, do we know him? I think we know him. Yeah. <laughs> um, the sketch is called The Humidifier, and uh, this was tough to track down. Oh, man, you got what? But we reached out to the Second City archivist, who was generous enough to supply us with a copy of the sketch, if uh, you want to yeah, do it for the listeners. Yeah, I love that sketch. It's not me, though, right? We're going to do it. Oh, we're going to do the you, sketch. You and me. Oh, my God. This is so cool. All right. Oh, my God. Holy smokes. Wow. All right. Cold reading. Is, this is fantastic. Did no world did you think no. this was going to... No, no, no. This is a dream. Why don't you set it up for people? Cool. It's uh, Christmas. This is from um, a great, great review called Take Me Out to the Balkans. It says Christmas lights up on Fran and Steve. Now, uh, just for context, Steve and Fran are boyfriend, girlfriend. 
And uh, they're like exchanging gifts or something like that. Yeah, Steve is coming over to his girlfriend's house to exchange gifts okay, for I'll, Christmas. I'll play the girlfriend. All right. I'm not going to do a voice, but okay, yeah, it's going to sound yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, yeah, I haven't really too. rehearsed this, but okay. Neither have I. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, I can't stay too long. I got to go over to my parents, but I just wanted to stop by and say Merry Christmas and give you my present. I brought a little something. I love you. Take off your coat. I want. I want. I want you to open your presents. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do I go for first? Uh, the green one with the holly. You're gonna love this. Okay. Let's see. Uh, you got me tickets to the Super Bowl. Super Bowl tickets. Oh, oh God, honey. These are skybox. You got me skybox Super Bowl tickets. And you want to hear the best part? You don't even have to go with me. Oh God. Thank you. Oh my God. It's in New Orleans. I got you a hotel room. You can take your brother. You you like it, right? Yeah, I I love it. <laughs> you always said women don't know what to get men. Yes. No, I, I it's perfect. This is this is perfect. I love you. In parentheses, it says they kiss. We're not doing that. Open open up the red one. Oh my god, you didn't have to get me anything else. Just open it. It's Michael Jordan's jersey? I got I got it at the muscular dystrophy silent auction. I won the silent auction. Oh my God, look, he signed it to Steve, my best friend in the world. Oh my, this must have cost a lot of money. I am on a five-year payment plan. Oh God, no. <laughs> yes, remember when you said you were a kid and you always wanted an autographed baseball and then you got one, but it fell out under the car and your dad wouldn't go back to get it for you? It just made me so sad. <laughs> Thank you. Do you love it? Yeah, I open the white one. Open the white one. Oh my God! No, you've done too, you've done no, too much. One, this one's just for fun. This is just for fun. Oh man! Uh, I, I had I had this first. Actually, this is the first gift I got you. A Blaupunkt CD player. Is it the right one? Yeah, it's the best. I read the Playboy Advisor, and you know what? I got it at the Fretters, and if you spend more than a thousand dollars, you get a free ten-speed bike, and it's. Well, that's in my bedroom too. You can have that, and I'm not oh, even no, gonna. No, 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 no. Shh, shh, shh. Okay, okay, okay. Do this for me. <laughs> keep the bike, please. Do this, please, please. We can keep share the bike. It. We can share okay. it. Okay, oh, okay, okay. Do you like it? Thank you so much. I, I, um. Okay, my turn. This is. I'm so okay. Do you want to tell me anything about the gift first, or? Uh. 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 Wow. A humidifier. It's a. Panasonic 2000. These are great. Uh, I, I checked around and this is the best one they had. You know, you're, you're going to have so much fun with this. You, you put the uh, you put the water in here and and you have the variable control knob. And, and, and this is great. Uh, a timer. So you can set it to like 2 a.m. At, at, at 2 in the morning. So you can just get, you know, this blast of moist air. Merry Christmas. Tell me the truth. You don't like it. Did you get this yesterday? No, I got it on the way over here. Today. Did you know before you went to the store that you were going to get me a humidifier? I had no fucking idea. It was the first thing I saw when I walked in the store. It was... I, I spent $4,000 on your gifts. It's not the money. That's not even the point. I just... I worked so hard and I planned for so no, long. No, I'm and... sorry. I'm sorry. Oh my God, this sucks. Ah, oh, this fucking sucks. I, I, 
I didn't mean to make you feel bad. I, I love it. I really do, Steve. No, I do. it sucks. Okay, it sucks. This is a really sucky gift. I'm going to go home and show my family all these great things you got me. You'll go home and... What did Steve give you? He gave me a humidifier. Everybody gather around Steve's humidifier. Well, Merry Christmas, asshole. I really thought you were going to buy me a fur coat. I mean, that's why I bought all this stuff. Th that's what I, I wanted to get you. Hey, hey, this is this is my Visa Gold card. Okay, I want you to take it. You can charge up to five thousand dollars on that. I want I want you to go and get the nicest fur coat that you think I can handle financially. The good ones cost like three, four thousand dollars. Is that okay? Okay, that, that that's what I want you to do. That's what that that that. Okay, do that. I love you, and I, and I'm sorry that it just sucks. But now you'll be able to keep your new fur all nice and moist. You know what? I I can't take it. What? I know you don't have the money for that, but, but the fact that you were willing, and that you wanted to, that's my present. I love you so much right now. You know what? We're going to have such a great time at the Super Bowl. <laughs> wow. Holy smokes. That was cool. <laughs> I biffed it, but that was cool. You biffed it? No, we both biffed it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Cold read. That was... That was when you read that, like when we're doing that now, like thinking back on that Ooh, time. Yeah. By the way, everyone that just listened, <laughs> only one of us was nominated for an Oscar. Okay? Oh, man, I just blew it. <laughs> oh, shit. That was Oscar nominated Stephen Yun. Oh, my God. And I did the best I could. That we let the words speak. They did. And, and they're great they, words. We hope they're very loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you look... When you look back at that time, you're in your mid-twenties performing improv yeah. with all these people. Do you look back at it fondly? Yeah, that was really fun. I'm sure it was strange to be brought back with the sketch. It was because it, it brought me back to the smell of that stage, the lights, Natalie, my scene partner. Yeah, I just remember, you know, that I got to be a part of an incredible institution. I got to walk backstage and be back there in the green room while all these heroes who've passed by those halls um, got to play in the same place. And even the ones that I was like there with, you know, there's so many people that I just admired and looked up to. That was a really fun time of just like doing something that I really, really, really loved. And yet there seemed to be some part of you that knew you could only take it so far. Like you didn't have ambitions to be on SNL, right? I mean, I would have loved that. I, I would have loved to have been on SNL. That was that was like the dream that was accessible through that pipeline. But I think for me, what I was conscious of as I looked around the room and all my contemporaries, I was like, I am not the funniest one here. And I am certainly not the best writer here. I don't know if my path is necessarily through this avenue. And I don't know exactly what I was thinking, but like one day I just remember waking up and being like, I'm going to move to L.A. And I just told everybody so that I couldn't back out. I told everybody. I was like, I'm going to move to LA later this year. And that's what I did. I just wake up sometimes and I like make decisions. That was a morning in 2009 that you woke up right. and just had this feeling. Yep. You moved to Koreatown mm -hmm. here in the city with your then girlfriend at the time, now your wife. Actually, even earlier, I had met my girlfriend at that time, 2009 in June before I left in September, we saw each other every day for six months. And then I had to leave. 
And I remember her dropping me off. Uh, she flew with me to LA and then I, and then she flew back. And I remember her leaving and I was just sobbing in the airport, just like so sad. Like, where am I? Who, like, you know, um, who is now my wife? And um, that you were, you were sad because you had made this big move yeah. to Los Angeles yeah. where you already were leaving everyone behind, mm -hmm. but now you were leaving yeah. her back there in Chicago. Yeah. When you dropped her off at LAX and she like, you know, mm -hmm. walks into the terminal. Yeah. She walked up the American Airlines escalator where you kind of look at them through the bridge up at the top and they can still wave to you because you're just in this in in just like the drop off area. That is that that I've I've done that. Yeah. It, that's a cruel design. Agonizing. <laughs> I don't want to see anything. <laughs> yeah, dude. I want I want closed doors. I wanna, I wanna, I, we, yeah. yeah, we gotta close the door here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We do not need a yeah. window into my soul <laughs> yeah, yeah. through American Airlines. Just tears. Just openly weeping. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy. So when you drive back to your apartment in Koreatown, mm that you're sharing with a couple buddies mm -hmm. from Chicago. What's going through your head? Well, luckily we had cell phones, <laughs> so it wasn't too crazy. I think for me, it wasn't that I was like, whatever, I'm fine. It was more like, I'm just used to isolation. And so it wasn't the isolation that was really terrifying. I wonder if it was just the separation that was really painful. And... My wife and I, we're, we're married now, and um, those early years, we just did long distance for a long time. Within the first six months of you living out here, you book three different ads and then land Glenn on The Walking Dead. The legacy of that show has been, like, endlessly discussed, so I don't really need to get into that, but, but I want to understand how you made that character hmm. as a young performer. When you were called upon to deliver an emotional moment, much like that moment in Beef that we watched, what would you use to get to that place? I would use praise music, or I would use, there's this one song from Cinematic Orchestra called Home, and that one always took me out. <laughs> and I would just kind of like go away and listen. And this is something I picked up from my peers, like looking up to Andy Lincoln in his process and he would just kind of like be in his earbuds and just kind of go away and like come back and I, I I stole some moves from from these people that I got to work with these incredible people that I got to work with and um, I remember doing that and you know what was interesting about it was that it started to wear out it lost his affect over a while in the process of making The Walking Dead yeah I couldn't go to that song anymore or those songs at some point like that well dried up because mm. yeah it, it didn't it didn't work as much anymore do you think it dried up because in the six seven years of making the show you probably changed a whole lot <laughs> massively yeah like that character you've often described him as deeply palatable you have this quote i felt beige with him like I was servicing a concept of goodness as opposed to engaging with Glenn's humanity. And that's a thing I wasn't able to feel for a while because I was holding up this ideal that was bigger than me, way larger than any single human can possibly do. I was tired of not letting people know that I have dark thoughts, that I could also have anger. 
how do you hold that work and then the move away from Walking Dead now? I think for me, that experience was one of the most important experiences of my life, clearly. But just the fundamental basics that that experience allowed me to have of seeing how to be a professional, seeing how to be an actor, seeing how to be in the business itself, seeing how to navigate um, the ups and downs of it, being surrounded by Jeffrey DeMunn and Scott Wilson, the late Scott Wilson, like that's a download that like people would dream of ever mm-hmm. having, you know, to be able to sit in their presence and like take in their wisdoms. And every single person in that cast for me was so incredibly important to my own growth. Professionally. Professionally. But I think what was the war with me is, you know, Glenn was written in a specific way, but I think also I have to face the fact that like I was presenting in that way too on a personal level. I was... That you were complicit. Yeah, I was completely complicit. And so I don't say those things without the awareness of that complicit nature. I, I think for me, in hindsight, I knew that I was trying to do the right thing at all times if I could. What does that mean? That experience was really wonderful for me because it, it taught me two things. I remember this one moment... The season two of Walking Dead, at that time, I was like the model concept of like the guy doing the right things. Like I was on time, knew all my lines, didn't take too many takes, just did it. I did it by the book and I did it. There were moments of freedom and a little charisma, I suppose, but like I was largely there to not be a hindrance that really locked me into a type of performance that was very rigid. And so I remember one time we were, everybody was fighting in front of the barn. The, the scene was to fight in front of this barn argument. And like, I didn't have lines. And so I was like, oh, if I don't have lines, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to try to get behind the camera and not be on camera. Because if I don't have lines, then like, I don't feel free enough to do something random which completely went against all my nature of college doing and, and Second City doing improv the whole time, which was so bizarre that I thought that way. And I remember Michael Satrazimus, who I love to this day, he was the first camera operator at the time, but now he's one of the most storied Walking Dead directors of all time. And he nudges me as I'm standing next to him. He just nudges me. He's like, yo, get in there. And I'm like, what? He's like, get the fuck in there. And he just like pushes me in. And then I was like, hey, oh, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. And I just started like improvising what Glenn would do in that moment. And that was really important for me because I was like, I have permission to be here. I don't need to offer anything other than my own presence to be here. I didn't fully grasp that idea. I was still very rigid moving forward. But then there was this other scene in season three where Glenn fights this walker in the chair and he's tied to a chair. And I remember, you know, that is something that I knew I could always offer was my body. Like, that's what I knew. I was like, I'm going to like show you how hard I can go with my body, how tough I am, how many takes I can do this. I'll do all the stunts. I'll do all these things. And I would try to earn people's respect by laying my own body out. And I remember doing this whole scene. And at the end, I like break the chair and then I stab the zombie in the, stab the walker in the face and I kill him. And there was no scripting of this moment, but I just let out like a scream yell, just like a guttural yell. 
And I remember uh, David Galbraith, who just recently passed away, who was our focus puller. And he is like the man. He's the guy that you want to be like, yo, you want his respect because he's seen it all. And I remember him being like, woo, there we go. Let's do another one. That, uh, he, he, like, he like gave it to me. And I felt so good. He saw me there. And then he was like, let's get that shot. And so then they repositioned the camera to get that yell. Mm. And it again propelled me to understand that like I'm a lot more free than I think I am. And so then by that point, I had kind of been complicit in locking Glenn into this model of goodness that I desperately wanted to shake out of. After the break... More from actor Stephen Young. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
coming back, what's striking is that this model of goodness that you created around the character of Glenn, in some ways, it kind of seems like you had been rehearsing that same model in Taylor, Michigan, at Troy High School, yep. at Kalamazoo College, at Second City. <laughs> yep. <laughs> over and over again, asked to not push the boundaries, to stay within the parameters. Yeah. And I wondered, is taking the role in Okja the first instance of you leaving the past behind? Yes. I think that also leads into like just maybe the concept of being an immigrant and just trying to fit into spaces and like the code switching that needs to happen to survive. And that agreeableness, I didn't have to access at Korean church. You know, I was like my full self at Korean church. I was angry, kind of shitty at times, like... The same way you probably were at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is this societal ask that kind of like feels like something that you must do. Or maybe perhaps it was just modeled by our parents, you know, who had just immigrated recently and just like tried to just like live in the track that was allotted for them. My dad was an architect, you know, he had all the reason to just kind of be free doing his own thing. But instead, he got just like siloed into this specific lane. And, and But he, he wasn't siloed mysteriously. Right. And I think in the last, you know, or forever, we can certainly lay it at the hands of a specific construct that maybe perhaps you can call whiteness or white people. But I also understand that that type of gaze and that type of construct is just embedded into everybody, including myself. The thing that I've come to the awareness of is that, like, you know, many things have changed and many things have loosened in rigidity to find us in this time, which I think is very exciting. And at that point, can we make our own way? Is the last boss myself? Am I putting the boot on myself? In the same way that I'm compl I was complicit in that same way with, with, with the building of the character of Glenn. Then to come out and get to experience Okja, Sorry to Bother You, Burning, in which I play very morally gray, if not perhaps not good people. And that is something that I'm deeply thankful that people gave me the opportunity to explore. Well, let's talk about Okja and then Burning, because yeah. in Okja, led by director Bong, you said the experience was, quote, a shakedown of my being. Hmm. What was the shakedown? Oof. I think around this time, I was becoming more conscious of the mysterious ride that is acting. Being cast in something, to be conscious of why you might be cast in something. You know, sometimes it is skill. Sometimes it is just like you're the best actor for the job. And Okja, you know, was afforded to me by director Bong and he pushed for me, I think because he could see that I could ride this line of in-between, of being kind of a third culture immigrant kid caught in between spaces. And the ride of being able to experience that and sit in the pocket of that and see how, you know, I was there as an actor helping to be like this de facto tour guide for my other fellow actors that weren't Korean and failing miserably at it. And then also in the subsequent other side, trying to like blend into being Korean because I was like going back to Korea and be like, hey, like I'm from here. This is what, this is my thing. And me being rejected by that place as well. The totality of me not being received incomplete. And so I was stuck in an isolation again. I was like stuck in this third place, this void 
space. And it was deeply unsettling for me at the time because maybe the ideal that got broken for me was that I thought at least there would be some place I could like put my bags down. And during that whole time there, I was like, oh yeah, there's, there's no place. I'm the only one here. So if that experience was a shakedown, mm. the experience of burning by contrast was pretty profound and also profoundly different mm. than what you experienced on Ocha. What happened there? Yeah, burning was wild. Um, burning is a story about a down-on-his-luck kind of poor young man named Chong Su who gets this random encounter with this girl he used to know. And as he continues this relationship with her, this other guy appears who I play named Ben. And he's a very worldly kind of character that is um, living at the top of his social stratum. and Kind of like a Gatsby-like character? Very Gatsby-like character. That was a really incredible role to explore because for me, it was the experience of a comfort in that third space, albeit ultimate privilege, but what it's like to live and sit in the void alone and be okay with it. So what happened in the two years? Like, how could it feel so isolating in Okja and something like refuge on burning? Well, a lot of things happened, actually. Um, I got married. I had a child. I also got to experience the film Sorry to Bother You, in which I also touched isolation as the lone Asian-American union organizer that's embedded into a largely Black working-class space. And that was its own experience of sitting in the pocket of isolation, of just like being alone and kind of being a lone wolf and I remember experiencing that film and we shot this one scene where Squeeze, the character I play, is looking up at Tessa Thompson's character and she's giving this art show. He was supposed to be kind of admiring her. And I remember thinking like, how am I going to play this? Like, how do I show admiration? And I just was like, all I have to do is just look at her and just watch her and just be entranced in my own mind. And the stillness in which I found myself rooted into the ground as that character in which he was firm in his own isolation mm. was a really nice precursor to going to then shoot burning that same year of a wild ride of a man that does not move too much. He's very still. He's sitting in a pocket of an awareness that is beyond most people. And it's unnerving. It's an unnerving <laughs> character. <laughs> completely, completely. It's a hard movie. Yeah. Um, the Chet Baker music is a psych out. It's not comforting. <laughs> yeah. It's not comforting. It was wild. And, you know, the books I was reading at that time, this is so eye rolly, but like, I remember Director Lee and I were talking about um, this character and like, we talked about the Ubermensch and we talked about uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. That was one of the books that he had actually written into the script that Ben reads. I, I just went and dove deep. Um, a lot of things were going on in my life, and I was playing in a character that was completely detached from that. What was happening in your life at that time? Oh, my God. My wife is holding it down by herself with our child. And she came to Korea with me near the end of it, but I was there for five months just in and out of this character. And mm. the world was reflecting back to me maybe the same vibes of this character as I was experiencing it, you know? I was there as kind of a known person in Korea, 
staying at like this really nice hotel and eating buffet every morning. And uh, while your wife is while my wife is taking care of taking new care of her new newborn baby, you know how much penance did you have to do? Like, did you do the it's, dishes for like five straight oh, years? We're still, after that? We're, we're still in it. You're still in it. <laughs> I, uh, I I I'm indebted forever. Did you get her a fur coat? She doesn't need that. <laughs> she wants she wants me. She wants me to be there. Yeah, the juxtaposition of that reality was part of it. Yeah. It's a lot to hold. I mean, I'm yeah. making silly jokes, calling back to a sketch we performed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh my God, that's so true. That is exactly what has happened. I got her a humidifier and she got me all these incredible things. She's so thoughtful and I got her this fucking humidifier. Oh my God. You just wrapped it right back around. That's amazing. Talk easy got me. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. I love you. (laughs) I think collectively, all these experiences after The Walking Dead, marriage, fatherhood, Okja, sorry to bother you, burning, a bit part in one of the best sketches of the last 20 years called The Gift Receipt (laughs) on I Think You Should Leave. Shout out Tim Robinson, genius. Was the humidifier a precursor to that? Wow, it keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. Did you put all this together when you were like planning it? You're like, whoa, I see the connection. Did Tim Robinson come up in Second City in Chicago? Yes, he did. Yeah. Was I 13 years old watching him perform when no one knew who he was with Sam Richardson? Were you? I was. Wow. Did we both take mushrooms right before this podcast? Because that's what it sounds like oh right now. Oh my God, you're blowing my mind. We didn't. Okay, cool. I didn't either. Right? I didn't. You're asking me? No, I didn't. I didn't. Let's ask your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I bring all of this up mm. because you take everything... I just went through and put it into this character of Jacob Yee in Minari, a farmer in Arkansas that drags his family through pain and stubbornness and his will. But before that all happens, July 2019, you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, two days before shooting. You're rehearsing lines in the shower. I don't generally ask my guests what happens in the shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But what happened in the shower? Um, cleaning happens in the shower, um, but also <laughs> uh, s- sobbing happened in the shower. I was like so terrified two days before we started filming. I was sitting there holding my script, wondering how the hell I was going to do this. It was the scariest thing to that point that I'd ever done. Burning somehow was not scary to me. It just felt like this ride. And Minari felt much more self-aware, probably because I was conscious that I had dragged my wife and my child at the time through what I wanted to do. And to come upon this script in this way, um, I was largely like lost. I, I think the biggest hurdle for me was back to here we go reconciling my father doing that to us not necessarily the act itself but just the disconnection that happens from not being able to communicate with your father about what is happening Mm. and so in that disconnect which i think i share with a lot of immigrant kids especially korean american kids that i speak with is we don't have those types of humanized relationships with our folks 
they kind of live in role and function and kind of like as authority figures in our life. And so you have these memes or these collectivized jokes of just like, you didn't get an A, you got a B, or like piano violin or doctor, lawyer, dentist, or um, these these things that we kind of build to make this Frankenstein idea of our parents was this looming construct sitting over me as I was about to play a person from my dad's generation. And I was in the shower freaking out because all I could do was just like approach this character in mannerisms and in like ideas and in no real relation, but just like mimicry. And like, it was almost like a sketch. And I knew that was the wrong way to go, but I couldn't figure it out. And so I get into the shower, I'm, I'm like just thinking about it. And then I just start sobbing. Um, I felt abject fear. And then I felt joy, gratitude, and just like awe. I remember feeling all those feelings. I remember cycling through those emotions. And at the end, I was like, whoa, is this what it feels like to like have faith? Not to have religious faith, but to just have faith. Faith in what? The unknown. For me, I, I rationalize it as you have two options. You can either face this head on and jump in, completely dive in and take it, or you can run away. You know, people search their whole lives for a challenge for something to be placed in front of them that they can do and accomplish or conquer or experience. And here's one right in front of you, as it's been many, many times in your life. Are you going to be ungrateful and run? Or are you going to be courageous and jump through? You know, I only saw one option, which was be courageous and jump through. In doing so, the image of my father's generation kind of shattered to me. I was like, oh yeah, he is not the amalgam of these ideas. He is a human being in the flesh that has his own unique desires that gets him there, like acting, <laughs> like character study. But this particular character was hard to crack. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the end of that experience, I was like, oh, I am my father. I am living my father's life as well in, in a continuum. As it poured out of you and turned into this performance, it eventually would be situated in a film that would premiere at the Sundance Film Festival at the Eccles Theater, January 2020, about six weeks before the world shut down. Mm -hmm. Your dad attends mm -hmm. that screening of the film, right? Mm -hmm. How does that go? Sitting right next to me and... Um, at the end of the screening, I just turned over and looked at him and gave him a hug. And I remember just like putting my hand on him or he put his hand on me and we exchanged no words. It was just like, I see you, you know, I experienced what you experience. And he just started sobbing. I started sobbing and it's pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. Why do you think you both were <clears throat> crying? Because we've been missing each other, you know? We've been completely seeing each other in an idea, trying to connect but never being able to, trying to not hold each other in images but, but have the space in love to kind of like let someone be their full self and accept them exactly as they are. We had missed that exchange 
um, with both my parents for quite some time. Maybe, maybe ever since we came here, you know. And yet it's in images that it sounds like you were able to access a part of him that previously remained inaccessible. And I was thinking, we started this conversation talking about beef. And I'm wondering, is this show really the clearest example of your father being able to access a part of you that maybe he wasn't able to before? Yeah. Danny certainly was tapping into an old sense of self of just that ultimate frustration of just not being understood or not feeling seen, not feeling appreciated, just stuck. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's going to be interesting to see them watch that because, yeah, I don't know what they'll think. <laughs> well, it's also the anger of this show, yeah. of this character, it sits in such stark contrast mm. to the model of goodness that you played in Glenn mm -hmm. that you were desperately trying to get away from. Like the thing you wanted to do, you've just done it. And when you walked into this room today, you said, I feel really uncertain. And I wonder, do you feel uncertain because the aim that you had since leaving The Walking Dead in 2016, like that bifurcated self, maybe that gap is closed with yeah, this show. Absolutely. And the question now is, what the hell is left? <laughs> yeah. That's so, wow, you're really help. Thank you for this because you're helping me process all of this. I think you're right. Like, I think... You know, I was conscious of what I was exploring. I was conscious of what was coming, what we were touching with this. But, you know, I'm not in other people's minds. I'm only in mine. And so when I say uncertain, it's not a nervous uncertain. It's really calm. I'm sitting in a calm right now that I feel so grateful for. One that doesn't feel as pushed and pulled as it used to be. But mm. really, I'm just kind of like, cool. I'm all here. Like, all parts of me are here. Sounds like confidence. Yeah. You know what? There's a great story about confidence. When I was shooting Burning, one of the biggest healing things for me was, I remember walking down the Hangang, the Han River, with my friend Tommy, and I was talking to him, and I was like, hey, man, what's the Korean word for confidence? At this point, I was, like, doing my language lessons, and I was like, I, I knew Korean, but, like, I, I spoke Korean in a very expat way, a kyopo way, which is like overly honorific, very like apologetic of my own existence, which I think a lot of Korean Americans share because it's not the first language that we tap into. And we only use it when we're usually probably around other elders. And so um, I would come to Korea and I started speaking, doing the lines of Ben and Director Lee was like, no, 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 you like... Korean people don't talk like that. And I had to figure out what that meant. And at one point it clicked. And one of the things that helped me get there was I was walking down the river with my friend and I go, what's the Korean word for confidence? And he goes, 자신감. And I was like, what does that mean? He's a confidence. I was like, no, no, no. Like, what's the etymology of that word? And he's like, I, I don't know. I don't think Korean people do that. I think they just go to like Chinese characters. They go to like the original Chinese character to like figure that out. And I was like, okay, let's break it down. Like, what does chajin mean? And he's like, self. And I was like, what does kam mean? He says, sense. And I was like, oh shit, that sounds like exactly what confidence means. 
A sense of self. A sense of self. And to go back to Korea for me and experience burning in that way and to kind of like reform and merge with a part of myself that I had maybe not been able to access for some time was another moment of confidence for me. And I remember coming back from that experience really rooted, a different person, a different actor. And yeah, I suppose with this merging too, in this way, getting to show this aspect of not just myself, but perhaps all of ourselves, the, the part of ourselves that we're not allowed to show hmm. on social media, on camera, but we do show on the road when we think no one's watching, you know? Perhaps that is very healing. And perhaps that is something that, not even perhaps, that is something that we were trying to explore. What about all the things that we don't say? Um, what about a side of ourselves that we completely like don't access, but only in limited spaces and it's just pushed down until it comes out in random ways in gnarly places. If that's what you were exploring in Beef, mm. you're 39. Yeah. A couple kids. Yeah. A wife, a mm -hmm. humidifier. A humidifier. We many actually have three. Three? Yeah. That's good. Each room. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not running away mm. from who you were, or the expectations that were placed upon you. Mm -hmm. As you're just now finally being yourself, like yep. in yourself, what do you want in the years ahead? Like if you and I listen back to this in three or four years, what do you hope happens? I think that's it. I don't hope anything happens. I don't hope for anything. I think I'm in a spot where... You're just in it. I'm in it. And I'm not watching myself anymore, which is nice. Well then, as we leave, I want to go to uh, one final scene where you're just in it. Mm. There was a day on the set of Minari. You're in Oklahoma. It's really hot. And it's one of those shoot days that just seems like it's never going to end. And uh, on break, you find yourself looking at the sunset, smoking a cigarette. And the crew spots you in the distance and sort of in quick succession, gets the camera in the right spot and starts filming you from this tall wheat grass. And as you were gazing off into the distance, I wondered if you were thinking about some lines from um, a piece of poetry called The Farm yeah. by Wendell Berry. Is that right? That certainly captures the feeling. What happened was... Lockie, our DP, and Isaac had gone out because we had finished our scene to just catch some late sunsets B-roll. And they were just shooting. And I'm a camera nerd and I'm a director nerd. And I walk over there and be like, what are you guys shooting? I want to know what's happening, what's happening over here. And they're like, we're just shooting some B-roll. And I'm like, cool. And I remember Isaac coming and be like, do you want to shoot some stuff here? And I was like, yeah, maybe you can just shoot me smoking a cigarette. Just in it. Just in it. And they just turned the camera and I tried to turn off any expectation and I just sat there and I started to be there and sit in it. And then I was compelled to pray and I was compelled to be lost in it all. 
that was a very pivotal scene that actually changed the course of how the script went, which is pretty fucking cool. Unbelievable. Yeah. There's this shot where we were supposed to have Jacob come into the bathroom and try to turn the water back on, but it wouldn't work. And out of frustration, he was going to punch the glass and like just go nuts in the bathroom. But instead, after shooting that, Isaac was like, I think I'm just going to do a slow push in on this sink as it turns back on by itself. That gives me chills just saying it because I was like, whoa, that is amazing. That's that's the incredible nature of, of Isaac's directing. And, and doing this work. Yeah, which is that Wendell Berry farm, which is that poem. Would you like to read it? Yeah, I love this poem. And so you make the farm, and so you disappear into your days, your days, into the ground before you start each day. The place is as it is, and at the day's end, it is as it is. A little changed by work, but still itself, having included you and everything you've done, and it is who you are, and you are what it is. You will work many days, no one will ever see. Their record is the place. This way you come to know that something moves in time that time does not contain. For by this timely work, you keep yourself alive as you came into time and as you'll leave. God's dust, God's breath, a little light. You can't not almost cry reading that every time. I did. <laughs> Where did you find that? I found this book in a bookstore in Tulsa I was looking at the poetry section and I just see this book called The Farm. And I was like, oh, that's cute. Like, we're making a movie about a farm. And I pull it and I flip to this passage and it's that passage first. And it blew me away. It formed the basis of the way in which I shaped that whole character for myself. What did it do for you? What hit you that blew you away? I think no one will ever see. Yeah. <laughs> And it is as it is, having included you. That blows me away. It is uh, one of the most accurate descriptions of what it is to give yourself mm. to work, mm. to art. And it's at once affirming and also a little depressing yeah. and painful yeah. and beautiful, mm. which I suppose is a whole lot like this conversation. Yeah, man, uh, this was a wild conversation, Sam. What did you do? <laughs> I am amazed and I have blessed timing. And the conversation I was having with my wife in the car as we was coming back from the premiere this morning, exactly wrestling with this. And you just close the loop. I'm good. <laughs> I'm healed by this conversation. I appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... um. Maybe a fourth humidifier would be good. Yeah, I should bring another humidifier home good. with a dial, better dials. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen Yun, a pleasure to sit with you. A true pleasure. Thank you, man.
And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks this week to the team at Narrative PR, Chris Pagnozzi at Second City, Harrison Cameron, and of course, Stephen Young. His new show, Beef, is now available to stream exclusively on Netflix. We'll be including a link to that and more on our website at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear other conversations with other great actors, I'd recommend our talks with Bob Odenkirk, Natasha Leone, Pedro Pascal, Quinta Brunson, Bill Hader, Abby Jacobson, Titus Burgess, and Ethan Hawke. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was engineered by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Illustrations by Trisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Paulina Suarez and Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with the one and only Michelle Williams. Until then, stay safe and so on. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.